So one of the things we do at Sanctuary is we go out and we film people's stories of mental health and faith. We believe that story is a very powerful medium to help people understand and learn. So when I took over the organisation seven and a half years ago, what was a local organisation, I had this idea. I said, could we go out and film people's real stories of living with faith through mental health challenges and could we create a course that's kind of like a mental health alpha course and maybe we could help congregations around the world build an integrated vision of mental health and faith and theology so that the church can become a sanctuary, so that the church can one day be famous for being the safest place to experience a crisis. So that's the journey we've embarked upon and many of you will already know, I think, but we've had downloads in 84 countries and we now released an album, which I think you may have heard before the service and you might hear afterwards, um, all kinds of interesting things. But back at the start of 2020, just before this um, thing occurred, which I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's called COVID-19. Um, just before this happened back in uh, February 2020, I was over in Durham in England, the north of England, and we were interviewing and filming with a theologian at the University of Durham um, who works in this area. And after we'd filmed with him, we drove just south of Durham and we met with a lady called Simone. And Simone is a lady who lives with a unique experience of living with schizophrenia as a person of faith. And we spent an hour and a half filming with her, hearing her story, and there was such a depth of wisdom that came from her lips. It was as if she was reading my mind in terms of Sanctuary's mind as to how we hold this subject. She was just communicating these truths and her experiences and it was just incredible and one of the things that majorly impacted me about Simone was the levels of stigma that she had faced as a human being. In her own words her socio-economic background being from a a lower socio-economic background, her racial background, her learning difficulties and her diagnosis of schizophrenia made her a heavily stigmatised person. In the eyes of wider society, she had a long list of things that people see before they see the person, before they see the beloved daughter of God, the friend of Jesus, the member of Christ's body. You know, the word stigma comes from slavery. Chattel slavery was common uh, throughout Europe and North America in the 16th to 18th centuries. The idea with this form of slavery was that a person was an object that could be purchased and owned by someone else. A slave would be purchased and then branded by the owner with a branding iron. And that mark, that wound, that scar, that stigma became all of that person's worth and significance. It was reduced to that mark that they carried. Their sum total personhood was revealed in this wound that they would carry as a marker of who they belong to. This is where the word stigma comes from. It is a mark that people carry that others see instead of seeing the whole person. To give you an idea of this, is something that many of us do, but sometimes in the whole mental health, the mental illness sphere, we refer to people as their diagnosis. We say, my friend Bob is bipolar. We would never say, my friend Bob is cancer. You would never say that. That would actually be quite an offensive thing to say to someone. But why do we do it with mental health? We do it because it's a stigmatised subject. 
We don't brand people with hot irons anymore, but we do brand people with labels that can be almost impossible for people to escape from. And the subject of mental health and mental illness is one such sticky label that we often place upon people, where we see the condition before we see the person, before we see the beloved child of God, before we see the friend of Jesus, before we see our brother and sister. Now, there have been times when people have said to me, well, Dan, the Bible makes no mention of mental health, which is true that the Bible does not use the modern term mental health, just in the same way that the Bible makes no mention of the word Trinity. If you were to say to me, well, the Trinity isn't in the Bible, I would say, well, the word isn't in the Bible, but the reality of the Trinity is everywhere. And the minute you understand the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is a relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit, when you have that doctrine and you read Scripture, you see the Trinity everywhere, from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Revelation. And it's the same with mental health. The minute you have the concept, the doctrine of mental health, you have the glasses to see it, and you see it throughout Scripture. You see people languishing and flourishing in their relationship with themselves, with each other, and with God. Now, when you look at various definitions at its most basic and essential, mental health means emotional, social, and spiritual well-being and being able to cope with the normal stresses of life. You can go to the World Health Organization or the Mental Health Commission of Canada. You can look up the official statements on what mental health is, but at its core, it is emotional, social, and spiritual well-being and being able to cope with the normal stresses of life. Now, as Christians... The biblical concept that seems closest to what we mean by the term mental health is in the Hebrew word shalom. As many of us will know, shalom means peace, but this Hebrew word used in greeting and bidding farewell has a richer, deeper meaning. Shalom signifies completeness, soundness, welfare, peace, and the concept can be applied to individuals, peace between individuals and peace between nations, but it can also apply to internal peace within an individual. And this is the closest biblical concept we have to mental health, to have that inner shalom, that inner peace. If we're really honest, our culture would say that our value is attributed to what we can produce, how autonomous we can be, and what we can create. How self-sufficient you can be. That's where our value is really placed in our culture. That is not a biblical purpose for a human being. That's a very worldly way of understanding a person. The Bible does not tell us that independence is the highest goal. The Bible tells us that interdependence is the highest goal. To be in relationship, to be in relationship takes vulnerability. I guarantee that for anyone who does marriage therapy, one of the biggest issues in, in helping a couple to be joined is that issue of vulnerability. Are we really seen as we are? Relationships are central to who we are, at least according to the Bible. Being seen as we are is essential to us being well and knowing God's shalom, God's peace. We are not made for independence or self-sufficiency. We are made for interdependence and relationships because we're made in the image of a relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. Similarly, how we understand our personhood is important too. You know, some people would say, well, we're just biological. We're just like animals, which is highly offensive. Others would say, well, we're just spiritual. The body doesn't matter. 
Others would say, well, you're really just defined by your social surroundings, like your upbringing and your sphere of influence. And others would say, well, it's all just in your heads. This is really who you are. But of course, God has fearfully and wonderfully made us to be all of these things all at the same time. You can't just be one of these things. You are all of them. All of these aspects of who you are make you you. When one is strengthened, all are strengthened. When one is weakened, all are weakened. This is how God has made us. This is how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Today, our Bible reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, and in it we encounter a woman who was heavily stigmatized, and we see how Jesus breaks the stigma that had kept her from being seen as a beloved child of God and a valued member of God's community. So Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 34 says this. So when Jesus went with him, a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you? His disciples answered. And yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who'd done it. Then the woman, knowing what happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know, for 12 years, anyone who came into contact with this woman was considered ceremonially unclean. She was entirely cut off from religious and social life. For 12 years, she was untouched, not touched by another human being, not spoken to, ignored, despised, isolated. This rejection would have caused immense mental and emotional suffering beyond just her physical ailments, as if that wasn't enough. One can only imagine the toll it took on her mental health to be so totally alone and estranged for so long. As an outcast with no money or support, she languished in poverty and was forgotten by society, every day reminded of her status as a despised outcast. When she touched Jesus, she would have feared his reproach, expecting him to treat her the way anyone else had done for the last 12 years, to declare her ceremonially unclean. But that doesn't happen. Instead, Jesus asks her to speak up and identify herself. And after 12 years of strict isolation, the prospect of speaking up in public would have been absolutely terrifying for her. But Jesus insists that she identifies herself. It's as if he's saying, for the first time, daughter, in 12 years, you will speak and everyone will listen to you. He gave her the space to use her voice. She was physically cured and a miracle had taken place. Giving people their voice in mental health is something that I feel so proud of at Sanctuary. I feel so proud in a good sense of pride. I feel so proud that we've given Simone a chance to use her voice to be heard by people all over the world. God really uses these sorts of voices, I think. However, this miraculous curing brought about more than just physical restoration for this lady, this lady with the issue of blood. By curing her biologically, Jesus removed all barriers preventing her re-engagement 
with community life and spiritual worship. He may have cured her physically, but make no mistake, he healed her by reconnecting her relationally to God and others and herself. You know, when we are seen and accepted and loved in community, it becomes a lot easier to love God and ourselves. Conversely, when we are stigmatized and rejected by society, it becomes a lot harder to receive God's love and to love ourselves as our neighbor. While the biological cure was immediate, the deeper healing was a process that was just beginning. Jesus began her recovery by eliminating all the factors and barriers that excluded her from a loving, caring, supportive community. I would suggest that the deeper healing that Jesus offered people was not primarily about biomedical curing, but rather it was about removing barriers that prevented people from being seen and loved in community. Jesus restored people to community by removing the barriers that prevented people from engaging. And Jesus provided a space, which we now call the church, for people to heal and be seen and loved in community. One of the ways we can remove barriers for people is to talk about mental health. That in itself is a barrier for people being seen and loved in community. What this story reminds us of is that every story has a context and a trajectory. Of course, life is filled with moments and seasons of languishing and seasons of flourishing. Pastor Ken wanted me to share this model um, of understanding our mental health, and it's something we use in the sanctuary course, and it's called the mental health continuum. This was developed by an American psychologist and sociologist named Dr. Corey Keyes. On the vertical axis, you'll see mental health from flourishing at the top to languishing at the bottom, or thriving to surviving. Mental illness also exists on the continuum, on the horizontal axis, from no signs or symptoms of mental illness on the right to severe mental illness on the left. Now, by mental illness, I just mean something that meets the criteria for diagnosis by a medical doctor. Now, in his research, Dr. Keyes found two groups of people to be of particular interest, as they didn't fit this one-dimensional illness health continuum. In my head growing up, I just thought, well, you have mental health, mental illness, and everyone is somewhere along the line, and I don't know why. But Dr. Keyes found that this simply can't be true, because Dr. Keyes found that there are two groups of people that didn't fit that one-dimensional idea. The first group represents people who are languishing in their mental health, but don't experience mental illness. So 9.5% of people. The second group had been diagnosed with a mental illness, but nevertheless had good mental health. That was 14.5% of people. So 24% or a quarter of people in this room simply don't fit a straightforward mental health or mental illness category. He found that people could be languishing in their mental health without a diagnosed mental illness, and people could be flourishing in their mental health with a diagnosed mental illness. You know, some of the most mentally healthy people I know are people who live with a diagnosed mental illness. And that's because they've had to work so intentionally to create a circle of care around their lives. They've had to be so intentional about who they spend time with and who they don't spend time with, about nutrition, rest, vocation, relationships, psychologists, medication, exercise. They've had to think about all of these aspects of how do I help myself be well. There is so much we can learn from people who've done that brave, hard work. 
And the point is this. In this model, mental health is not the absence of mental illness. Just because you don't have a diagnosed mental illness doesn't mean your mental health is good. Similarly, shalom is irrespective of our physical or biological situation. To know the peace of God in all seasons and stages of life is a profoundly biblical concept, and it's irrespective of your biological situation. You could have a perfect, uh, you could have perfect biological health. You could have an Olympic athlete with 20 gold medals around their neck, multi-million dollars in a bank account, a huge Instagram following. They could be all the ways that our culture sees them as successful. But if they don't know the peace of God, how healthy are they? Conversely, you could have someone at the end of their life with a diagnosed mental illness who is ready to meet their maker, who has the peace of God in their heart. According to the Bible, which one of those people is healthier? Don't believe the lie that our culture would tell us that you need to live up to some kind of constructed idea of what success looks like. At the end of my life, I will look back at my relationships. I will think about my children and my wife and my family and my friends. I know I will. And the temptation for me as someone who is entrepreneurial is to get dragged into work, is to do 100-hour weeks. This is a temptation to me. And I have to resist it because it's not going to lead me to a place of well-being. It's not going to take me to a place where I can say at the end of my life, I am at peace with God and I'm at peace with others. The Bible paints a different picture of well-being. And the point is this, all of us are on the continuum. But mental illness is undoubtedly an experience that makes flourishing more difficult. So mental health is not static. All of life is a journey back and forth in this continuum as we respond to the stresses of life. This is how God has made us and his promise is to be with us in all phases and seasons of life. And his call to the church is to reflect that promise, to also be uh, uh, present to people in all phases and stages of life. Sometimes we move around the continuum in the space of a day, and we also have seasons in our lifetime, seasons of languishing and seasons of flourishing. So there is no us and them when we talk about mental health. It involves all of us because all of us are somewhere on this continuum all of the time. And of course, Jesus... God incarnate, he had mental health. We see in scripture times when he languished. Think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. Think of him hanging on a cross, naked, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How have we gone from this picture of vulnerability to churches where we feel like we have to be shiny and happy all the time? How has that happened? This supreme act of vulnerability by Jesus as he cries out to his father and he gets no reply. There will be people in this room today who have been crying out to God and getting no reply as well. And what I would say to you is your experience counts in the biblical story too. Just as Psalm 88 ends with the words, darkness is my only friend. You know, there are some people that are so disturbed by the idea that a psalm could end in that way. It's the only psalm that ends with darkness and despair. There are some people that would say, well, it's actually the first half of Psalm 89. They've, they've been split up over the years. And I say, no. 
because some people's experience is the end of Psalm 88. And those people need to know that their story is included too. That may not comfort people as much as they want to be comforted, but it is something to know that your story counts in the story of God and his people. The Bible makes space for every human experience with inclusive compassion. And so we too must convey this sense of inclusive compassion to all lived experiences. To know that you're not alone in your suffering can make suffering more bearable. And of course, Jesus' question to the Father from the cross remained unanswered for three days until his resurrection. And his wound-scarred hands, we call it the stigmata, which, yes, it comes from the same root word as stigma. He carries these wounds, these wounds that become a testimony of the redemptive power of God to use his suffering for the salvation and restoration of the cosmos, to bring shalom to all things and the possibility of shalom to all people at every level of creation. So my question is, can our suffering in our mental health hold a redemptive space in our communities? Well, I believe, I believe if we are enabled and empowered to bring our stories into the open in a safe space, in a sanctuary, I think it can. And the question that keeps me awake at night is what will the history books say about this historical moment when the pandemic has ended and the mental health epidemic has begun and we're in the middle of it? What will the history books say about the church? Because when I look at the history books and I see points of need in society and history, the church has always stepped up. That's why the whole geopolitical landscape of the Western world is shaped by the church. There's a reason that there's a... If you go to England, where I'm from, there's a cathedral at the centre of every city. Why is that? Because the cathedral was planted there and the city was built around it. Because the cathedral, the church, was always the centre of healthcare, welfare, education, justice. It was the place that met these very real needs in society. And once more, in this very real need in society, could God be calling the church to step back into that place and do what we've always done, which is to be that sanctuary to people. There was a time a few years ago when an intern joined our organisation and we explained the mental health continuum to her. And after we'd drawn it on a whiteboard and explained it, she paused and said, can I add one more thing? Because I think you're missing something. And she stood up, took a pen and drew a big circle around the continuum. And she said, the circle represents God. This was a profound yet simple way of making absolutely clear the truth that all human experiences are valid in the sight of God and that God is indeed available to all human experiences at all stages of the mental health continuum. When I saw the circle, I suddenly said, wow, you've inadvertently made the continuum into the Celtic cross. This ancient symbol that speaks to the truth of every moment that the cross of Christ speaks to all human experiences and all creation. As we see this image of the cross pointed like crosshairs at the center of the world, it's a reminder to us that wherever we find ourselves today, the cross can endow us with a true and genuine hope that says wherever you are, your story counts. You are in the body of Christ. There is room for your story. And God's people, the church, should not be scared of your story. I am not scared of your story. Neither is God. Your story counts, and together through a process of recovery and relationship, it is possible to discover 
shalom once more. Now on that trip to Durham that I made a few years ago that I mentioned at the start, I and my cameraman, after we had filmed with Simone, uh, we had an amazing time filming with her, we drove up to Sunderland. I don't know if any of you have seen that documentary series on Netflix about the Sunderland football team. Football as in the game that's played with a ball in your feet. <laughs> not the other football, which is played with your hands and an egg. So it's not like hand egg, it's football. Um, it's a good documentary, you should watch it. Um, but we went up to Sunderland, right in the north of England. And um, we had this contact. Someone had made a connection with a man there who lived with... Um, psychosis and he's a Catholic and he had given us a date, a time and an address and that was it. So we drove up to Sunderland in the darkness of night to this little street where there are these row houses which I call terraced housing but I have to call them row houses so you understand what I'm talking about. And um, we went and rang on this doorbell and we waited and it took quite a long time and just before I was about to say to the cameraman, okay it's a no show, let's go back. Um, Mick answered the door. And we soon realised why it took Mick so long to answer the door. Uh, Mick lived in a converted garage at the end of the garden of one of these row houses, which had been subdivided into four properties. There were four different residences in this small row house. And his property was a converted garage, as in a place that formerly was big enough to have a car put in it. And Mick lived there on his own. So... Um, me and the cameraman went into his home. There was some disarray. We moved a bit of furniture. We set up a camera. And then I began chatting with Mick. And what became evident very quickly was that all of the footage we were filming, which we were hoping to use in a resource we were creating, all of the footage would not be usable in the ways that I wanted to use it. And that was for a few reasons. Firstly, Mick has a very strong northern accent. And secondly... Because of Mick's diagnosis with psychosis, he had had some very troubling uh, experiences. And so the doctors uh, had given him medication to help manage those. And the medication had left him with a number of very debilitating side effects, including very slurred speech, and he couldn't string more than four or five words together, couldn't maintain eye contact, and he had a number of tics. In fact, when I, when I first met Mick, I looked at his arm, and his arm was red, red raw. And I thought, oh, he must have, uh, again, you would say eczema. I would say eczema, but eczema. I thought, oh, he's got eczema. And I soon realised it was actually a tick. He was scratching his arm constantly. It was, it was one of the, the debilitating side effects. And so I sat with him and I, I'm thinking, this footage is not going to work for the intention I had. My agenda is not going to work here. And um, so I thought, okay. I, I sort of whispered to the cameraman. I said, let's just forget about why we're here and let's just connect with Mick. So I looked around and Mick, I found out Mick had been a teacher. Uh, he had two children that he hadn't talked to in a very long time, two daughters, and um, he had a number of guitars around his house. I said, Mick, do you play music? He's like, yes, I've played for like 50 years. I said, would you play for us? And so he picked up his guitar and he played this melodious song and started singing to us. And it was in this moment that I and the cameraman, because we talked a lot about it afterwards, that we collectively had this heightened awareness of Christ. In Mick. We saw through his stigmatized body 
And there was this great sense of honor and joy to be with him in that moment. And yet he had so many unanswered questions. I had so many unanswered questions for him. As I thought about mixed unanswered questions as we drove away, I was confronted with the unanswered question that Jesus cried out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A question that just hangs there as Christ hung there. A question that doesn't get answered. And so I left Sunderland wondering what I would do with Mick's story. Well, three months passed by and I got an email from someone who said, hello, you don't know me, but my father was a man named Mick and he recently passed away. And I found an email he wrote to you to arrange for you to come and film with him. We'd love to know if you have that footage. We haven't seen my dad much lately. He didn't have any friends. We, of course, shared the footage uh, with his daughter to share with his, her sister as well. You see, meeting Mick was not about the film or fulfilling some organizational agenda that I had. It was about seeing Mick, hearing his story, and encountering Christ in the midst of his story and sitting with him in the unanswered questions to say to him, Mick, you're not alone. And I'm not scared of your diagnoses. I'm not scared of your awkward personality traits. I want to be here with you. There are people in this room that feel stigmatized, that need a friend to say, I'm not scared of what you're going through. I want to be with you in it. I think if we, the church, can learn to do this for each other, then we may just begin to create a church that makes a little more room for people in the midst of their mental health languishing to find their place in the body of Christ. Of course, Mick now has his answers. He is with the resurrected Christ. His hope is now realized. But I believe if renewal or revival, or whatever you want to call it, I believe if it is to come to the church in this generation, I believe it will come about through a church that will stop and sit and listen to the stories of people in pain. If we can learn to listen, and lay down our preconceived ideas of what life should look like, then I believe we will experience and hear the voice of Christ afresh in the voices of those like Mick who are seeking shalom in the midst of the storms of life. You know, in preparing for this sermon, I found the last email that Mick sent me shortly before he died. And uh, he concluded his letter by saying, please pray that I can have the grace to do what I can for folk like me. There's a battle ahead, and it's going to be won, but it's up to us to keep the faith. There will be those among us who cannot sing the songs that the rest of us can sing. There are those among us who won't have words to put to the experiences they're going through. It is up to us to keep the faith for them and to remind them of who they are. You may not see the battle that someone is going through, but that doesn't mean it's not real. And one thing we all need are friends around us who can see through the stigma and remind us of who we are as beloved 
children of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has known what it is to be isolated. He has known what it is to be stigmatized and rejected. And Lord, I pray uh, for this church, for this group of people in this place, that we would find comfort in that image of the Christ who knows our suffering and that we would also comfort each other, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the immense possibility that lies in this group of people, a community called together in love to express love and to be a conduit of your love to this world. Lord, send us and use us to remind this world of your love to be a sanctuary, a safe space for people in crisis for the sake of this generation. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Saviour, our friend. Amen.